invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews, chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 12. We'll read to the end of the chapter of Hebrews, chapter 12. Uh, As is our custom, I read on the New King James Version. God's Word declares, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. We good? All right. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow." And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. This morning I have an opportunity to look, take a very long look with you into really just a few words. Less than a verse really is all we're going to be dwelling on this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. But within this partial verse we are going to have a rapid fire lists of expectations by Paul for God's people. As we look through this, we get excited because these are the things that we long for, and rightly so. This is what God intends for us people. 
And Paul does not want to imply anywhere through here that his purpose in writing this is to prevent them from this or to uh, tell them that they are not worthy or that they are disqualified from these things, but rather that the entire purpose of writing to them and the entire purpose of his ministry to them is that they would be the possessors of these very things. That these would be attributes that are normative within their fellowship, within their lives, within their families. And so we have a lot of Scripture, even though we are going to really focus on just one verse of 2 Corinthians 13, we're going to spend a lot of time in many other Scriptures that bring these uh, statements uh, of fullness that I hope we can begin to value. Not just because of our selfish interests that we want these things, but rather because of the means by which they come to us. That they're not derived by the strength of our will or our character or our corporate goodness. They are derived by the working of Jesus Christ in us to produce righteousness. And out of righteousness comes these qualities. And we're going to see that in several passages. And we're going to be reading them at length. Um, that is of greater benefit to you than anything I could say. Is allowing God's Word to speak. But let's go ahead and read the verse at hand that we want to look at in 2 Corinthians 13. Beginning in verse 11, and we're going to end in verse 11. It says, finally, brethren, farewell, be complete. We studied that last week as we looked at his desire that they be made complete back in verse 9. We want to cover the balance of this verse now. We are not going to get to verse 12. That deserves its whole own sermon. Balance of verse 11 says, Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. We have three directives that Paul shares with the Corinthians. That when all is said and done and all the troubles and turmoils and interpersonal issues are dealt with, that in the concluding desire that he has for God's people, we have three that he draws out and recognizes the inner relationship between our involvement in these and God's participation. But while they are certainly derived from a singular source, that there is a dependency upon us to bring them to fruition in our lives, and God will respond to that aspect that we bring to the equation and multiply it. Before we look at these, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our gracious God, we do thank you for the opportunity to share your word. Lord, we thank you for what you anticipate for your people. That you are not disinterested in our needs and our welfare. That you are intimate with them. That you are not 
in opposition to us, but that you are for us. You have demonstrated that very powerfully through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come to you with that knowledge, asking you to work in our midst. You might guide what is spoken, that might be according to your word of truth, that we might be attentive to that message and derive from it not selfish interests, but interests that glorify you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit to direct us into your truth, to guide us. And Lord, our desire today is to be dependent upon him. To guard us, to direct us, to illuminate us, to convict us, and to lead us into all truth. To comfort us, to encourage us. Lord, we pray that even now, you might work through your word in these your people. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we come to these, and it'll be very easy to simply look at these three wishes, if you want to call them that, three desires of Paul for the Corinthian believers, and these are not isolated uh, to the Corinthians. He shared these in various forms in many other passages of his letters. But this is fundamentally what he desires for God's people. These are some of the qualities that we should be known for. They should be evident in us. And in fact, they may be the very evidentiary that people are looking for to see if what we have is real. Are we real? Has God made a significant difference in us that transcends any uh, thing that man can produce within himself, that these become a, a solid reality that men may point to, examine, consider, That they are evident in private as well as in public, within the context of the church, but also within the context of the world. Can they see these in us? Paul's expectation is that this is what the church should look like both internally within ourselves as we look at ourselves as members individually of the capital C Universal Church and also corporately as a body. That is, as a, as a people that are being observed and are observing one another, uh, that these are the character qualities and the attributes that we should carry with us. And so we want to look at these three. We're going to cross-reference into a number of other passages that are bringing out the correlation between these. But I want to begin, really, by connecting these. These do not hang out here independently. They are not simply promises of God that you access by simply saying, God, you said you want me to have good comfort, you want us to be of one mind, and you... and and so I want those things. He wants to live in peace. Um, and so uh, this is what you want. And so I'm accessing that now. I'll make it happen. 
Rather, we recognize this as a human divine cooperative, as much of our relationship with God is. Salvation itself, a human divine cooperative. God initiates the process, we respond, God then responds to our response and begins a process that brings about salvation. Our part in that is very minimal. It is nothing we can glory in. It is something that we participate in as recipients, but yet God requires us to fulfill that minor role. We must accept what he offers. And so here, these directives, these, these desires of be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, are set in the context of what we just studied last week. They are set in the context, almost everywhere I read of them, throughout God's Word, they are set within the, the foundation of a right relationship with God that is evident by righteous living, and that this connection of do no evil and be complete in Christ is tied intimately, directly, and interactively with these directives. You cannot produce these independent of that. And if that is the reality in our life, these of necessity must come forth. We cannot claim one without the other. They are interdependent. Let's look at a few places where these ideas are brought together in other texts, and I think the greater value would be for us to read them extensively um, before we really uh, delve into each one individually. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. A passage you're probably familiar with, uh, we use it a lot in talking about gifts and ministry. Want to know that's the first half of Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at the last half of this chapter, uh, and we're going to look at it uh, as an ex- expo- exposition of these three statements. We're going to pick up verse 9. Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And there we have that, do no evil. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. There's our second directive, right? Be of one mind. Be of the same mind is the word used here toward one. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. We have this expansion of what it means to be of one mind. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. There's another directive we have. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat cold fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And again, Paul encapsulates these instructions of be of good comfort, be of one mind, and live in peace with the idea it begins and ends with hate what is evil. Don't let evil overcome us. We are to be characterized by goodness. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 37. We're going to read a couple of the Psalms. I want to begin Psalm 37. It's a lengthy psalm. Nope, that's Proverbs. No one there's no 37. Psalm 37, I want to read all 40 verses. I was going to try to pick and choose a few, but... Uh, I don't like doing that, and there's less value for you, I think, in doing that. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they soon, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Him. Trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake it. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword, and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. In the days of famine they shall be satisfied, but the wicked shall perish. And the enemies of the Lord like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish in the smoke, they shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. 
The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright. For the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. The Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in Him. Hopefully as we read through that you can see the principles laid out there. The same principles that we see in Romans and in 2 Corinthians in a very brief way in 2 Corinthians, and yet here expanded more fully, that we understand the correlation between what we are to possess as the children of God and what we are to perform as the children of God. We find all through this psalm here in Psalm 37 an expectation that we will be righteous, we will be just, we will in our speech, in our handling of the uh, decisions laid forth before us, in our handling of, of the poor, that we will be blameless, that we will be upright. This is how we respond to the work of God in our life, that when He uh, brings the rights of Christ in us, we walk in righteousness. When that occurs we find that the world notices. It says, Mark the blameless man. He's noticeable. He's identifiable. Mark him. Observe him. Watch him. And what's in his future? Well, <laughs> the psalmist has here declared his comforts, that he's going to have his inheritance. It's declared that there's a oneness there with the, with the mind of God, that God's justice and His justice are of one, and that there is a oneness among them, that there is also peace in His life. Now, by peace in His life, we don't mean the absence of turmoil, the absence of opposition. We are talking about a peace that endures opposition, that looks at the wicked and says, well, they seem to be prospering over there, they're, they're coming against me over here. They seem to be beating people down over there. And yet I can live in peace in the midst of that, knowing that I don't trust in fate to work that out, that I don't trust in my own righteousness to work that out, but I trust in the Lord. That the Lord is observing what they are doing, that He is keeping records of that, and that He will bring justice on them. And justice on the wicked means judgment. And we wait for him to do that. And there's a, a, a peace that settles upon the righteous man who trusts in the Lord and recognizes that there is deliverance, there is salvation, and I can take matters into my own hands and try to correct all of these and frustrate myself. God says, trust me, I'll mark the wicked. I'll set them aside for judgment. I'm watching. I'm observing. I'm aware. Your responsibility is to wait on me. 
to keep my way. The psalmist says, verse 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way. We want all these benefits of the Christian walk and, and the qualification for them is that we wait on the Lord and we keep his way. We are the blameless ones, the righteous ones, the ones who are upright, who desire to do good and not evil, that we love justice even as our Lord does. And throughout this psalm and many of the others, we'll read one more today, um, we find this correlation that God values a people called by His name who don't just give lip service to that calling, but rather back it up with righteous living. And in response to that, a product of that in our life, that the psalmist here describes as his blessing, as his uh, preservation, as not forsaking him. Uh, He uses all these words to describe what God has in store for those who will be counted among the upright. Um, We have Paul's description of be of good comfort. Be of one mind. And live at peace. These are all things that God intends for us. But they require something of us. Just as God intends for us uh, eternal life and send His Son to die for us, it still requires of us to receive it. It requires something of us. And it is obvious from many, many scriptures that that which it requires of us is obedience. is to walk in righteousness. And God says, you can trust me. You will be of good comfort. That doesn't mean that you're going to be, never be uncomfortable in the physical world. In fact, quite the opposite. You're going to be very uncomfortable. People are going to be opposing you, seeking to tear it down, seeking to uh, undo. But when we look at David, and as he wrote many of the Psalms, even while he's being hunted by his own king, In all the discomforts of that, and all the doubts and questions that that certainly raised in his mind, and he explores and describes in the Psalms, he trusted in the Lord. He took comfort in the fact that he was going to do what was right, and God valued that. God would not leave that unrewarded. That God's purposes would be fulfilled. You can trust Him. Even while you're hiding in caves with a price on your head and you're hungry and tired, you can have good comfort because you've trusted in the Lord and you know where the outcome will be. You know that the evil man who seems to just be getting stronger and stronger and succeeding and spreading his roots and branches like a green tree, it says, um, you know that his days are numbered. Why? Because you know the Lord and you've trusted in Him. You can be of good comfort. And being of one mind is going to be of necessity because this is not the mind of a man, but a man who has subordinated his thoughts to God's. 
we have joined with God in His concept of justice and good. And we have abhorred what is evil. Let's read another passage. I have a couple more I want to get to before I get back to 2 Corinthians. Just a few pages back. Let's go to Psalm 34. You'll see again, this is in the context of David pretending to be an insane person to save his own life. I don't know about you, but that doesn't strike me as the best time to talk about trusting the Lord. But here he writes this, I will bless the Lord at all times. I'm working on that one really hard this last few weeks. Let's go. i got to press on. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnified Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. This is the state of being in good comfort. That the prophet can say, we're not at risk here. Open your eyes, servant, and look at the heavenlies. They far outnumber the opposition on horses in front of you, riding their steeds behind them. David goes on, O taste and see if the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. This is not isolated just David. His statement is to all of us. All his saints. God wants you to fear him. There should be that one-mindedness. And this is not unanimity on every single issue um, out there, but rather a one-mindedness. That is that, that there's a singular purpose and goal and objective, and that is to glorify God, that we have that as our purpose, to fear the Lord and to do right. And that this transcends everything else, that everything else becomes minor. Any other difference of opinion or thought becomes insignificant and must subordinate itself to this one overriding mindset which we should all share in. And that one mindset is we will fear the Lord and obey Him. And that marks above everything else. He goes on. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? A question. Who is that man? Most every man I know wants to live, have a lot of days, and see good all those days. Verse 13. 
keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What is our peace dependent upon? Departing from evil and doing good. Sound familiar? Goes right along with 2 Corinthians where Paul says, my desire, my ambition, my object for you is that you do no evil. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil and cut off, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That doesn't sound comfortable, does it? Many are your afflictions. <laughs> but the Lord delivers them out of them all, and that is ultimate comfort. He guards all his bones, and not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. They're going to be killed by their own evil. And those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Wow. Paul is not here introducing anything new. He is, he is simply, uh, again, resounding what we have found throughout Scripture from Genesis on, um, that the Lord is good, but he requires something of his people, and as they respond, uh, as he initiates that goodness for them, they respond by trusting in him, fearing him, by obeying him, and then he blesses. Not by removing every opposition. One day he will. But rather, by strengthening and enabling us in the midst of it. And this, 2 Corinthians 13.11 describes in a very brief series of instructions and statements. Do no evil. Be made complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And, which references that, in response to that, here's God's part, the God of love and peace will be with you. This is a very, very brief summary of many scriptures. I've only touched on, what, three or four? God initiates something. He then demands obedience. He demands that we get rid of sin, that we live righteously, that we be upright, blameless, that we do no evil, speak no evil. In response to that, we have opportunity to have good comfort because we can trust the Lord. We have a one mind that we'll fear Him and live for Him. We live in peace, not in absence of conflict, but rather a sureness, a stability, that we have a righteous God who is just and will both be the judge and justifier. And as we bear these out in our lives, 
a wonder occurs, and that is the God of love and peace is with us. What I find too often in many people's Christian experience that I have encountered is we come to the equation backwards. We fail. Instead of taking responsibility for that failure to meet the requirements of such a passage as this, we come to this and said, God, you've left me. You're not with me. And it's your fault. That you've abandoned me. You've forsaken me. And that's why all these bad things are happening to me. And we begin a process that is spiritually destructive. That process of saying that these are God's fault. Because He isn't with me. And He isn't for me anymore. And we do not have comfort. We do not have that singular mindedness towards Christ. We certainly are not living in peace. We have that the conflicts that are out here become in here because we no longer trust Him. And none of us are facing what David faced. None of us face what Paul has described here in this letter already. None of us are facing that kind of opposition, that uh, apparent abandonment. And yet we are quick to say, God, you are not with me. You're against me. You've abandoned me. You've left me. I feel I'm holding everything myself. And we quickly make it his fault if we lack any good comfort, if we lack a single-mindedness after Christ, and if we do not live in peace. And almost invariably, we find an unwillingness to understand this equation in the right direction. I find a very Unwillingness to really examine ourselves. If there's a lack of comfort in my heart, if there's a lack of singleness in my mind after ser- of serving the Lord and fearing Him, if there's a lack of peace in my mind and heart, um, rather than coming and saying, the Lord has left me, He isn't with me, we need to recognize that to the failure in this equation is always going to be the variable that is you. Because God does not vary. (laughs) The variable in the equation is not your circumstances. It is not others. It is not your pastor. The variable in this equation is not God. It's not your circumstances because they'll change. You're going to have opposition. You're going to run into trouble. You're going to have to do weird things sometimes to just preserve life. and, And it seems like God's totally abandoned you. But that's just an illusion that you've created. David didn't start off that way. He says, where are you? No, his statement is, I'll trust in the Lord. He 
You see, the variable in the equation is you. Because peace is not dependent upon your circumstances. And it's not built on other people around you. And whether they favor you or don't favor you. It's not built upon whether your family is nice to you or not nice to you. It's not based upon your income level. It's not based upon your ethnicity. It's not based upon all those things that you have no control over. The only variable in this equation of God's desire for his people is you. I have to go back to what Paul says in Romans and Corinthians, the writer of Hebrews that we read earlier communicates, uh, David communicated in the Psalms. We have it uh, from cover to cover in our Bibles. I have to come back and say, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. That I do no evil. That I be counted among the upright. That I can be marked in society as a blameless person. That if anyone speaks evil of me, they have spoken unjustly of me. And we have some psalms about that as well. That we're not going to take the time to get into too much. I want to take you now to Hebrews. We read it earlier. I think it's important that we do more than just read it because you weren't into the sermon. I was into the sermon while I was reading it, but you weren't. In Hebrews 12, again, the expectation is that you will make straight paths for your feet. That you have a responsibility here to strengthen yourself. And then, just like the psalmist says, pursue peace, so we have that now spoken again in verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Wow, that's kind of scary, isn't it? That's a frightening statement, isn't it? It kind of makes you shake. It should. Without pursuing peace and without holiness, no one's going to see the Lord. Now, we recognize we can't produce holiness of ourselves, but this isn't written to the lost. This is written to believers who are considering going back into sin. Who are considering, seriously considering abandoning Jesus. It's written to believers who are the possessors of the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. And the statement is, you people who call yourself by the name of Jesus Christ, pursue peace. <laughs> pursue it. Chase after it. And while you're doing that, you better go after some holiness too. That is, live your standing. You've been made righteous in Christ. That's a judicial statement. You have a righteous position before God. Now, live like it. You've been declared righteous, justification. Now live righteous. 
Be holy as I am holy. That's a command. With some frightening consequences, and he reiterates them here, looking carefully, lest anyone falls short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness, you want to know what prevents peace and good comfort and one-mindedness? Bitterness. Whether that's against other people or whether it's against God, um, isn't relevant. Don't let any bitterness spring up. It'll cause trouble in your life. And by this, many become defiled. Your bitterness is poison that can affect others. So we look carefully because now we have this, these frightening declarations that without pursuing peace and holiness, we won't see the Lord. If we, we don't want to fall short of God's grace, we don't want to be Esau. Esau was a possessor of an inheritance. Was he not? He was the rightful heir to the inheritance, to the birthright, to the blessing, to all of it. He was the firstborn. He had the right. And here, Hebrews is saying, listen, you all are the firstborn spiritually. You have come. He describes you that as verse 23, if you're wondering. It says, to the general assembly of the church, to, of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. You have this right. God has given it to you. This right. And are we treating this that we possess? Um, we possess the holiness of God. We possess peace. We possess comfort. We possess all these things of life. We are the possessors. We're the firstborn. We have those right to that inheritance. But the author of Hebrews warns us, he says, if you're not pursuing peace, if you're not actively trying to live this out in your life, you're kind of making yourself like Esau, who possessed all those things and didn't count them of any value. And I think in the church today, there are a lot of Esau's who do not value what God offers them as an inheritance and trade it away for ridiculous things like a belly full of soup or fill in the blank, whatever your belly full of technology, belly full of property, a belly full of gold, whatever. You, you fill in the blank what you're willing to trade your birthright for. You who have claimed to be reborn in Christ. Do you value what Christ has done in you? The rights He has given you as sons of God? If so, then we certainly aren't going to be Esau's. But what was Esau's predicament? He was hungry. And his statement was, what good can it do me if I die? Sound familiar? What good is eternity if I'm so miserable here? Where's God right now? You see, Esau lived for the moment. 
And perhaps one aspect of where our society has gone in our technological age is that our young people can't hardly conceive of waiting milliseconds for a page to download, let alone a lifetime for blessing. Instant gratification is what our world is all about and has produced the spirit of Esau in our, in our churches. And we have traded away the most precious things that God offers for a bowl of soup. Because it's tasty today. And whether it's the chasing after pleasure of wealth or power, we've traded away the birthright. Because we want to be gratified right now. We can't see that there is a future. Esau was really sorry after he did it. And it didn't do him much good. Verse 17 says he was rejected. And there was no place for repentance. He could not get it back once he had traded it away. And it got even worse that having lost the inheritance, he then lost the blessing as well. What Paul describes in 2 Corinthians is the blessing. And these are two separate things, and Esau understood that. He traded away the first, thinking that he could preserve the second. Not realizing that when you trade away the inheritance, the blessing is now at risk. And I want to share with you that what 2 Corinthians is describing is what Hebrews here describes, what David describes, what the Bible describes. So if we do not cherish the inheritance, and the inheritance is our salvation, it's life, and the manner in which we cherish that is by living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, in righteousness, in, in doing no evil. That's how we cherish our inheritance. I will serve the Lord all my days because He has done such wonderful things for me. I cherish my inheritance and I will cling to it and I will hold it in such high regard that I will endure any current evil being perpetrated against me like hunger because I'm going to look forward to this. When we fail to cherish that, we fail to live according to that inheritance. We can cry all we want over the missed blessings of comfort, one-mindedness, peace, joy, the love of God. We can cry over His missed blessing all we want. And it will never return. Because you see, the problem really wasn't the missed blessing. You, you're crying then. Esau didn't cry till he realized he missed the blessing. But he missed the blessing because 
he did not value the inheritance. And I see a lot of Christians going, I'm missing the blessing, God, I don't have any peace, I don't have any this, I don't have And I'm like, well, you gave away the inheritance. Why? Are you worried about the blessing? And we want the blessing to come back, but we don't want to reinvest in the inheritance. I sold that a long time ago. I sold that to the God of this age. And we have it in reverse. And we are like Esau. We desire after the blessing. We lose it. And there's no getting it back because we have squandered and sold out the inheritance. Of course you're going to lose the blessing because you counted the inheritance, the salvation of God is cheap and valueless. And if you dare think that somehow what we're doing isn't is not as bad as what Esau did. Oh, Esau, what Esau does is really bad. The author of Hebrews warns us. He says, listen, what you're doing is many times worse. Esau was dealing with earthly things and an earthly inheritance and an earthly blessing. But we're not dealing with earthly matters here. We're dealing with spiritual heavenly matters that are eternal. And he goes back to Moses at the mountain and says, you're not sitting at a mountain uh, that's in front of you physically, that's burning with fire. You're not sitting at that mountain that if you walk up it, you're going to be stoned to death. No, that's not what you're dealing with. You're dealing with something much purer, something much greater, something that requires even more from you. You are the firstborn of God. Not the firstborn of Jacob. You're the firstborn of God. Do you really think that you can count as cheap his inheritance and still expect him to bless you? Really? Do you think that there isn't a expectation of lost rights when we sell out to Christ? Do you really think that the one who shook the earth and will one day shake the heavens and the earth will disregard the way we count our inheritance? That we really don't start crying about it until we lose our blessing. We don't ever really get sorry about our sin until we lose our blessing. But judging by the book of Hebrews, by then, it's just too late. Because you've already sold Christ out. Rightly does it end with our God as a consuming fire. Let that fear 
settle on us a little bit to take more seriously these wonderful blessings that God wants, but they are built upon inheritance that we receive by faith through Jesus Christ and the step in between being possessors of the inheritance and possessors of the blessing, that space in between those two is filled by the simple words of Paul, do no evil. That's all it is. The words of David, be upright, be blameless, be righteous, be just. The words of of Paul in Romans, of John in the first John, that we're going to love the brother, we're going to love righteousness, we're going to love God, we're going to keep His commandments, we're going to love all these things. And it's no mistake that the writer of Hebrews here says, let brotherly love continue as the very next verse of the next chapter. We have this expectation by God that if we really value the inheritance that it will show in our life and it will be evident to everyone that whose child we are, that we are heirs of the kingdom not made with hands and we will live a life like it and we will not squander it away for some mealy mouth offer that this world gives us. Because this world can't give you anything that satisfies. We will hold our inheritance of highest value and not treat it with contempt by sinning against it. And the result of that will bring these blessings that the God of love and peace will be with us. It's time we stopped being Esau's and cried because we're not getting the blessing of God when it was our fault, we were the variable in the equation that squandered the inheritance and counted it cheap to be called children of God and thought we could live however we wanted for the day instead of for that day in living in righteousness. When we choose to cheapen our inheritance to the fact that we are willing to trade it for whatever pleasure, whatever our eyes see, whatever our flesh wants after, whatever the world says it ties to entice us with, we're willing to sell what God died for us to for us to possess. How dare we think that way down the road, by crying and being sorry, not because of what we did the inheritance. We're crying and being sorry because we're missing the blessing. Where's the blessing of God? The blessing of God is reserved for the upright man, for the blameless one, for the just one, for the righteous one, for the one who will do no evil. But will do what is good. The variable in the equation in all of these passages is us. As a church body, it's us. As individuals, it's us. As a family, it's us. We dare not call God to blame for the fact that we just don't consider being a Christian 
that important. Certainly not important enough to live my whole life that way. To radically conform myself to Jesus. Not that big a deal. So, someone that considers it a big deal is considered a fanatic. A ranter. But God has a different view. He considers such a one a son to be blessed with being in good comfort, lack one mindedness, living in peace, and having the God of love and peace with him. Always. This is Paul's desire for the church. Dependent upon his other statement, certainly. On a foundation of an inheritance that's paid for by Jesus Christ. But demands that we value that payment. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for the opportunity to look in your word this morning. We have spent just a brief time. And we have scratched just the very surface of all of this. And even having done just that, we're convicted. And Lord, we pray that we might be ones who walk in your ways as your children. Because we value the inheritance that you have spent yourself for. Lord, we all want your blessing. And we see the requirements of receiving it here before us and know that we haven't really measured up. And for this we are sorry. Our prayer that we might be a people that are not sorry for missing your blessing, but people that are sorry for not valuing our inheritance enough to live as children of heaven. Lord, help us to walk in your spirit this week better than last. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.